Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. There are 17 miles of corridor in the Pentagon and the distance between the second and the fourth floor and the acclaimed E-ring where the fancy people sit is maybe 30 feet. James Trevitas on September 11th, 2001 was on the fourth floor as a plane hit the second floor. He was directly involved in that rescue effort and of course went on to a longer tenure on Iraq and on Afghanistan than literally any officer in the American military forces. He joins us now off of an extraordinary essay in Time magazine. Um, Admiral Stavitas, I just congratulate you on the clearest statement from all the experts weighing in on this debacle. Let's start with the simple idea. When you constructed that essay, what was the greatest mystery about where we are now in Afghanistan? I think the mystery for all of us has been the sudden, complete collapse of the Afghan military. And to me, you can pull a lot of different threads together, but I spent a good deal of my four years as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, that's of course Afghanistan, NATO mission, training the Afghan security forces. I would have bet they could have held on for a long time if we had continued to supply them and resource them. So this sudden collapse yeah. uh, was a shock to me. Uh, Admiral Stravitas, we have to get X thousands of people out. You are expert at deploying helicopters, planes, whatever to do it. I guess we're not going to deploy boats and ships to get people out. How do we get them out, Admiral? Yeah, 300 miles to the sea, that's not a good option, landlocked country. Um, we have the technology to get them out. The challenge is going to be get them in. By that, I mean getting them into the airport. We've got to find a mechanism to bring in, first and foremost, the American citizens, but also the interpreters, the allies who worked with us, our, our NATO partners. Um, there are tens of thousands of people who need to get out. The Taliban are around that airport. I think the only path forward to get the people in is going to be through the Taliban. No one likes that, but we're going to have to have a very direct dialogue with them, uh, offering them some carrots and some sticks to open up the doors and let the people in who want to leave. Admiral, what do you make of this Taliban 2.0, as some folks are calling it. Uh, they seem to, on their initial press conference, say everything that a Westerner would want to hear. What did you make of that? Taliban 2.0, and I've been using that phrase for quite a while, um, is Taliban 1.0 with really good media training. Okay. And, and, and I, for one, do not believe uh, they are going to change their stripes. They're not going to suddenly listen to their better angels. They are not going to be kinder or gentler. And even in the last couple of days, we've seen shootings, beatings. There are reports from out in the provinces, uh, out from under the sight of Western media, of uh, girls being taken away from their homes. I don't look for big improvements, unfortunately. 
All right, Admiral, given where we are, I mean, it's, it's easy to obviously keep focusing on the video that we see on our news shows over the last several days, but you've got the perspective of the longer term. As you look back over the last 20 years here, what are your thoughts as you see these events unfolding on the screen? I think there's three vectors of failure here. Uh, one is the Afghan government, and in that sense, the people of Afghanistan. Uh, they did not buy into, by and large, the vision that we had for the country. I think a second vector is ourselves, um, our belief, our hubris in believing that we could uh, create uh, a kind of highly democratic, um, very Western-oriented structure, train a national army. Um, we believe too much in our own mission. And then thirdly, you got to yeah. give credit to the Taliban here. That's the third vector. They've been very right. successful and have found ways to uh, maneuver around us. Admiral, I've got about 42 more questions. Paul Sweeney tops me <laughs> with 50 more questions. But here's the single final question on this morning. And it's just simply, isn't it to the benefit of the Taliban? They're pushed in. They're a tribe. They've got their own rule set. Don't they want all those elites to leave Kabul? Isn't it to yes. their best interest to get the elites out? It is. And, and frankly, not just the elites. They want to get, in my view, they ought to want to get all of these people out. Um, the question yeah. is, what's their appetite for vengeance as opposed to their rational calculus? Let's hope they land on the latter. Admiral Stavitas, thank you so much for joining us. We've barely had time to touch on my book of the summer, 2034, a novel of the next world war. It is a different novel than what we've been talking about, but I can't say enough about it. It is, it is just a phenomenal, quick read. I'd also mention Thomas Barfield's one volume on Afghanistan, Paul. Yeah. Just superb, just superb. On this stew, we go macro. We do that with George Goncalves with MUFG Securities America's head of U.S. macro strategy. George, I want you to fold the GDP guesstimates into the dynamics of the market. You are acclaimed at yield dynamics. How do you fold a movable feast of GDP guesses into that? You don't, Tom. I mean, and that's really the bottom line. We've been really uh, divorced from these fundamentals for, you know, going on five, ten years. And this is something that, you know, I think um, most uh, uh, rate forecasters have been kind of struggling with is trying to go back to what, you know, what does growth and inflation really mean for what should be captured within an interest rate forecast. And and I think that's, that's you know, that's the way the way things go. I mean, the, the bond market trades more and more on price and on momentum it trades almost like a commodity in many, many regards where yield becomes like a second thought until yields get too low. And then people start saying, wait, why am I buying it? There's not enough carry. George, Lisa brought up a quote yesterday from Bank of America that I think is really important. I was talking about it as well. Bank of America suggested we were at the threshold of a major bifurcation of scenarios. They could see yields go to north of 2% by the end of the year, south of 1% by the end of the year. Do you think things are that finely balanced right now? 
I mean, maybe not that finely balanced, but I, I do think that there is a break potentially coming up soon, and that and that is definitely true. And I think you kind of in your intro kind of uh, alluded to these things that, you know, on the one hand, the Fed is not going to get boxed in. I mean, we we saw from the RBNZ, you know, if you know the Delta virus were to get worse, or if we get any sort of kind of slowdowns beyond what was what's being projected, or con, or the concerns of like this kind of peak growth gets you know further entrenched. And that factors into a slower uh, end of the year and into the early part of Q1. The Fed can just kind of always push back. That's that, that's what they'll always do. They're never going to pull forward tightening. They're always going to push it back. And of course, these global factors matter too. And so, even if we were to handle the Delta virus better in the U.S., if the rest of the world either you know, has a uh, more lockdowns, that's that's an issue. Plus, this you know China growth dynamic, if if that starts to really you know weigh on on commodities and overall uh, just kind of uh, you know economic financial conditions. The Fed's going to take that into account as well. When you say the Fed won't get boxed in, in other words, they don't want to necessarily commit to tapering, there is an issue of harmful effects of their carrying on with their programs the way they are for a longer period of time, especially as we do see inflationary pressures. Yes, they're idiosyncratic with respect to supply chain issues, but also on the margin, if we do get a rebound like Goldman Sachs thinks, it could be that much bigger if the Fed keeps pumping money into the financial system. How much are you concerned that the Fed is shrugging off some of of these deleterious effects of their continuing of monetary stimulus at this point? Oh, I'm concerned. I mean, as we all know, it's all, not what we want the Fed to do or we think the Fed should do. It's what they will do, right? So we're always trying to forecast that. Uh, I mean, I do think that they should be in the process of tapering. and Maybe they've overstayed their, their QE welcome for, from quarters now, potentially. And they maybe, you know, we should have been starting sooner. But, you know, that's that's my, not my opinion, not necessarily what okay. they're going to do. Well, but let's go with that. Then what's the negative consequence of that that you're willing to bet on or that you're gaming out in terms of your market call? Yeah, so right now, like the, the, the concern is, and we're seeing it manifest itself in the RRP, in the reverse repo program, and how there's too much liquidity. Even in the minutes yesterday, uh, you know, there was reference that potentially, you know, as we head into a debt ceiling with all this liquidity, with the Fed not tapering yet, potentially, uh, you know, most likely, I don't think they're going to do it in September unless things really perfectly line up uh, in terms of tapering announcement. And even if they do that, they're not going to start it like in September. So there's going to be a lot of liquidity still flo- you know, in the system into this very acute period of excess liquidity. And, and so that you know causes an issue potentially for the money markets. So you know, there's definitely signs that you know they need to be tapering and they need to get out of this QE business. You've spent a long time with Japanese banks, George. The reason I bring that up is because you've got a lot of experience looking at the Japanese bond market. I want to understand from your perspective, because some people raise this question, and just because I'm asking it doesn't mean I believe it's going to happen. I think it's a question we need to be asking. Do you think we could replicate what we've seen take place in Japan? over the last 20 years, which ultimately Europe took over in the last 10. Do you think that could happen in America? So Europe is still um, struggling with believing that there's a Japanification going on within their bond market. But when you have negative rates and you have you know, just low activity overall in Europe, I think you know, Europe looks a lot more like Japan than the U.S. will for the most part. But I think that, you know, yeah, you know, we talk about always like these breaks in markets for the next quarter, but the real breaks is, is trying to understand the next three or five years if the U.S. can really get back into a, a growth trend that would uh, prevent us from falling into like this Japan scenario. George, and I, 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 would say, I would say no. I would say we're not there. It's not clear yet. I agree. MUFG Securities and Macros Head of U.S. Macro Strategy. He is optimistic. His name is Neil Dada. And he has courageously carved an optimistic tone on the classic GDP formula. He joins us now on a day of a multiple set of glooms. Neil, 
within the GDP formula, what's going to come to the rescue? Is it the consumer? Is it investment, net exports? What comes to the rescue to give us a better than good outcome? Well, I think it's uh, inventories. Uh, you know, when you look at um, the last ISM number, uh, the customer inventories index, that looks at, um, you know, respondents that are saying their current level of inventories are too low uh, compared to too high. And uh, it's basically at a record. So basically manufacturing um, survey respondents are telling you their inventory levels are too low. Basically what that means is they're going to be, um, you know, working to fill those inventories, right? They need to get inventories into line with final demand. And while inventories, you know, over long periods of time kind of net out to zero, they do right. in the short run contribute a lot to cyclical swings and growth. And that's going to put manufacturing production uh, into overdrive. So, you know, when you look at things like um, Philly Fed at 19.4, that's still a pretty healthy number. Uh, and so, you know, manufacturing production is going to be a tailwind for economic activity. Uh, and as those right. inventories catch up to final demand, that's going to be a, a big tailwind for overall GDP. Growth. I just took Philadelphia Fed folks off my terminal here uh, uh, back 15 years. And Neil's right. It's nicely above the long-term moving average. Neil Dutta, what is your GDP for 2021? We're seeing everybody market and market down. Where are you for the economic growth of the nation for this calendar year? Yeah, I mean, I think like six and a half, seven uh, percent is not beyond the realm of expectations. I, I understand that people are taking their their forecast down for the third quarter. I think that's largely just a mechanical adjustment to what's going on with the Delta variant. So you have uh, increasing COVID spread. People are taking matters into their own hands and staying away from restaurants, air travel, hotels, uh, these sort of high touch services. But you know, I mean, the people that I talk to have a uh, time horizon that extends beyond three weeks. And, um, you know, when I look further out, the 12 to 18 month outlook, can anyone really say that that's materially changed? Um, if anything, you're seeing more activity getting pushed into that into that time frame. Neil, you know, this is so such an important point. If you'll allow me to jump in. Sure. We've been talking about your point through this morning. For you and others, it's recovery delayed, not derailed, that any growth we lose in this quarter, we gain, regain in the, pro pre in the next quarter, in the year after that. Neil, what's the difference between a recovery that's delayed and a recovery that's derailed? What distinguishes the two things? Well, I'm just saying there's not as much structural, um, you know, changes in consumer behavior than people are expecting right now. So just extrapolating what's going on um, in the, you know, in August isn't necessarily going to tell you much about what's going to happen next August. It may well be, John, that we're trading a bit more COVID risk now for a lot less COVID risk later. Um, certainly, if you look at um, you know some of the the data on coronavirus, it looks like cases will probably start to peak sometime in the next week, and case growth will get, begin to moderate to the extent that COVID is an issue. Uh, I think it's more of an issue in the Asia-Pacific economies, right? Australia, New Zealand, um, certainly Vietnam, uh, you know, you're seeing. And so maybe that's going to exacerbate some supply chain issues. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to matter much for the U.S. housing situation. Well, but, Neil, and, there does seem to be a one-two punch here. On one oh, hand, here we go. Here well, we go. Here, I mean, uh, no, I'm just throwing this out Lisa, there. Lisa, aren't you tired of being wrong? 
for the last 12 Being months? Being skeptical. I'm not making a market call, honestly. <clears throat> it's honestly well, trying God. to come up to look around corners. Wow, you come out with gloves on. Um, bear with me while I try to ask my question. But like, just this one-two punch of supply chain disruptions that are causing higher input costs in addition to a Fed that's being that much more patient because of some of the headwinds that the economy is, uh, is, is experiencing. I mean, does this contribute to higher inflation on the margins down the line than otherwise would happen? Well, I think it's not so much about the inflation, in my view. It's about what the Fed is going to do about it, right? I mean, so you, I mean, I, I, I concede that point. I mean, you have had a little bit of, you could say, stagflation light uh, mm-hmm. concerns coming to the market. Growth has weakened. I mean, even the Fed staff took down their growth outlook and revised up their inflation outlook. You saw it on the minutes yesterday. Um, but again, I think that's probably going to be uh, temporary. And certainly, um, you know, you have seen things like used car prices come down. I mean, if anything, in the July data, the supply chain issues were becoming less prevalent, right? I mean, if you look at building unit, housing units under construction, still going up, completions going up. So even as starts moderated, right? So that tells you that builders yeah. are working through those backlogs. And similarly, we had a nice pop in manufacturing production driven by uh, autos, motor vehicles. Neil, can I ask uh, you a so- question? Does it, why does it make you upset to hear people try to come up with b- potential bearish counterpoints at a time when there still is a lot of pain in the economy? I mean, yes, it has because been a my job, optimistic Lisa, view. My, right. My job, Lisa, is to take an economics call and help investors turn that into some kind of a market call. In other words, make them help, help them make money. So if I wanted to be bearish... I would tell people to pile. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about what GDP is. It's irrelevant. It's using that and translating it into a market call. So if you want to go head first and buy utilities hand over fist, be my guest. But I will I'll be telling people to do something else. Uh, And that's ultimately how business economics, market economics. That's why it's important. A GDP call on its own is irrelevant. What matters is taking that GDP call and translating into some kind of market outlook. So. you know, if, if I'm looking at it and I'm telling and people are saying you want to be raising cash for the last 12 months, I mean, it's ridiculous. So um, I think the cyclical trade is probably taking a temporary break, but this is essentially, in my view, a consolidation within an ongoing uptrend in the, in the market. You two should have your own show. Tom and I could just I, I sit just it out. Take it Tom off. and I could just take a break. Neil Dutton, Neil, it's good to catch up. We appreciate your time. Renaissance Macro Thanks, Research Head of US Economic Research. This is an important conversation because Jennifer Nuzzo reads the research. Jennifer Nuzzo, the New York Times has a standout article on the silly plastic barriers that have invaded our lives. That includes John Hopkins University research, which say desk screens could actually give us an increased risk versus intelligent use of masks. Can you help us with the plastic that's engulfed us? I am hermetically sealed from Lisa and John. I haven't hugged Lisa in like 18 months. That's not because of COVID. I mean, help me, Jennifer. (laughs) I think Lisa needs help right now, Tom. Can you ask the doctor a better question? I miss you guys so much. Jennifer, please, on the plastic screen, help. (laughs) Somebody reach over and hug Tom. (laughs) He really needs it. Go ahead. No, I mean... (laughs) 
you know, listen, I, we don't have a lot of evidence for a lot of these things. I think intuitively there are probably some environments in which it makes sense. If, for instance, tollbooth operators, people who have a lot of exposure with the public, putting a another barrier between uh, those people and the people they're serving, I think makes a lot of sense. But when you see people sitting at a desk and they have like a three foot, uh, you know, plexiglass uh, between them, it's it's not clear what that does, if anything. And it sounds like it could potentially cause harm. The bottom line is um, probably not going to be as protective as a mask, um, although, you know, we always try to layer these interventions. But, um, you know, I think the most egregious example of the plastic was at one of the the, uh, the vice presidential debate, those tiny little things that um, separated um, mm-hmm. the vice presidential candidates. Not going to do much. Help me with then the need to get vaccinated. What does the last 48 hours show you within all your reading and research about the getting vaccinated? That has not changed. If we do anything to put ourselves back to normal, to go to back to our lives, it is to get vaccinated. There is nothing new in the data that suggests otherwise. Heard a lot of news uh, yesterday about the potential need for a third dose. I will tell you, most people, including myself, think that the data aren't quite there to suggest that most people need it. There are clearly some small groups of people that absolutely uh, need extra help, and that's the immunocompromised, and they're already uh, able to access a third dose. But as far as people broadly, uh, you know, we're not yet convinced that that's happened. The bottom line is the vaccines are still doing exactly what they need them to do. They prevent us from getting still enough to get in the hospital, which, again, if this virus couldn't do it, we'd never hear of it. Dr. Nutso, then when do we stop caring whether we get infected? Because right now, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, as a vaccinated individual who has a child at home, and I, I sound like a broken record, who is not vaccinated, I care as much about getting infected as I do about getting very sick, just simply because this will affect the people who I care about. So when does when does that change? Sure. So I think that's exactly a, a potential off ramp for, for caring about getting infected. Um, I have also unvaccinated kids at home because they're too young. And hopefully when vaccines become available for them, that'll, that'll lessen those worries. But getting a third dose doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting infected in the first place. So that's unfortunately not going to ease those worries for you. Dr. Nitsa, there have been reports about new antibody therapies coming out of China mm-hmm. that have actually been somewhat promising. How much does that potentially provide a game changer here where we can actually combat this and treat it more like a regular illness? I think that's, you know, one of the missing areas that uh, we need more progress on is is treatments Um, because, you know, there will be still some breakthrough infections. But also we know we have a lot of people who are not vaccinated and are going to need treatment. So that is, I think, uh, an important area of research. We have some things now, but they're not very scalable. You still have the the. the monoclonal antibodies you hear about, you have to go to uh, a center and basically be hooked up to an IV. And so it's very hard to deliver that um, in, at scale, particularly given the number of cases that we have. Mm-hmm. If we could give somebody a pill and treat them, um, potentially even at home, like we do for influenza, uh, I think that would have an enormous uh, contribution to lessening our worries about this virus. Jennifer, New York City restaurants, and I'm sure other restaurants that our uh, listeners and viewers are uh, familiar with, uh, they're in an uproar about paper vaccine vaccine inspection to get into their restaurant. When do we get away from the silliness of what, the 1850s? When do we get away from a paper document that's clearly instantly forgeable? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's uh, a real problem. Um, people can forge it. Unfortunately, um, the apps are not potentially better than that. I think there was a story about one of the apps being used in New York where you could just upload any photo and, and get a green check. And then it's on, uh, you know, the bouncer at a club to scrutinize whether you got your two Pfizer doses on time. Um, I think there are people who are pushing for a more verified uh, vaccine record. Of course, that raises all sorts of concerns and potentially concerns among the people who have not yet gotten vaccinated. And we absolutely don't want to turn those folks off. But I, I think, um, you know, we're seeing right now the challenges of the immunization records that we have. They're um, easily forgeable. In my view, um, you know, people who are determined to not comply will find a way not to. People are very crafty. And so I tend to focus on changing hearts and minds and make sure we convince people to get vaccinated. Mm. Doctor, thank you. Appreciate your time and perspective, Thanks as so always. Much. Dr. Jennifer Nusso of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.